to the Development Policy Center. Africa has a rich history, diverse cultures, and abundant natural resources. Despite this, the overwhelming majority of Africans remain poor, disenfranchised, and oppressed. In this podcast, former Eritrean ambassador to the EU and author Anderbrandt Welded Georgius will discuss the drivers of the democratic deficit in Africa and the continent's prospects for the future. We hope you enjoy this podcast. I'm Bob McMullen. I used to do interesting things. Some of you may have heard of them, but I am now uh, here in my capacity as a visiting fellow at the Crawford School and in particular at the Development Policy Centre who are hosting this function. And let me begin by uh, acknowledging the traditional owners of the land and uh, paying respects to their elders. Now, I won't speak for very long because uh, the Amb- Ambassador Georges has said he'll speak for about 40 minutes and we won't have time for questions. But I did want to say in opening, apart from a few remarks, of course, to introduce our speaker, that I just welcome the fact that we're getting this indication from the ANU of some interest in Africa. Because, <laughs> because we are not the Australian East Coast University, we're the Australian National University, and therefore we have to have a consideration for the Indian Ocean perspectives uh, and, and the African... In, and Africa is very much in... An interest in Africa is very much in Australia's national interest. Not just because we are part of the global community and it's where some of the great global issues are going to be resolved over the rest of this century, but also it's in Australia has a really strong and enduring interest in the success of Africa. Not time to talk about that now, but it's clearly the case. And unfortunately, Africa is coming back in the headlines for a number of reasons, some of them good but some of them to do with the fact that famine famine is rearing its ugly head again. And The Economist said last week, these days famine is never just a natural disaster, it's always a product of politics. And that's why I think it's very important that we're talking about political developments in Africa today and I really welcome the ambassador. I should call him that. The ambassador, I know that uh, you've all had a chance to see uh, his uh, biography because uh, there was a brief version of it in the promotion of the event. So let me just say a few things that perhaps weren't in that uh, publication. Additionally, he had that unique experience of going from being educated in Harvard to going to be a freedom fighter. And going on from that, after the success of the struggle, to a number of positions, and the irony that struck me of going from being a freedom fighter to a central bank governor really hit home to me. For those of us who know central bank governors very well, it's a very it's a dissonant image that I find difficult. But I really appreciate the irony of it. He then, of course, subsequently had to go into exile and was an academic and a senior advisor to the International Crisis Group. Uh, on Africa, which of course explains his relationship with our esteemed Chancellor. And he's also an author, an author of this book, Eritrea at a Crossroads, which will be available for sale after the event. So please uh, avail yourself of that after you've heard the speech from Ambassador Georges, who will speak, as he said, for about 40 minutes, which will give some time for questions and answers afterwards. So please, it's over to you, Ambassador. Thank you very much.
Thank you very much for the kind words. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm very honored to speak here at the Development Policy Center, the Crawford School of Public Policy at the National University. I'm very grateful, of course, to Professor the Honorable Gareth Evans, uh, Chancellor of the University and my former boss at the International Christ Group. For this honor, I also thank Professor Stephen, uh, Stephen House, the Director of the Development Policy Center for hosting this event. The topic, Democracy in Africa, past, present and future, is very broad and difficult to address with justice in such a short lecture. To convey a general outline of democracy, or rather the lack of it, in post-colonial Africa, I will try to present one, a brief overview of the impact of European intervention in Africa. Two, the struggle of the African peoples for self-determination. Three, the challenges of democracy. And four, the prospects for democratic governance in Africa. Africa is the original home of Homo sapiens, or the birthplace of mankind. This makes it the oldest inhabited continent from which humanity spread the world over. Africa is also the cradle of civilization. It has a rich history, diverse cultures, and abundant natural resources. For millennia, Africa and Europe have been in constant contact. The record shows manifold interactions in the times of ancient Egypt, Carthage, Aksum, Greece, and Rome. However, the Afro-European relationship has not always been positive. It had its dark side in the slave trade, the colonial project, and the Cold War, with devastating effects on the development of Africa and the evolution of African society. Let me briefly highlight these historical features to set the context for our discussion this afternoon. The slave trade uprooted 18.3 million Africans 17.5 million were shipped out of Africa and 820,000 died awaiting shipment in African ports. Between 1450 and 1900, 11.2 million African slaves were sent via the transatlantic route into the New World and 50,000 to Europe and the Atlantic Islands. Slavery deracinated, brutalized, and humanized millions of Africans, disrupted the fabric of many in African society, and ruined the economy. The surplus created by the slave trade and the use of slave labor in the New World represented Africa's loss and Europe's gain. Adding insult to injury, the descendants of African slaves despite their considerable contribution to the development of Europe and the Americas, continue to endure pervasive racial discrimination. The catastrophe of slavery was followed by the calamity of colonialism for Africa. The colonial system, sanctioned by the Berlin Conference 
carved Africa into colonies, interrupted its indigenous processes, and gave it its present geopolitical formation. Driven by nascent Europe's rising demand for labor, raw materials, minerals, and markets, the Berlin Conference laid the groundwork for European conquest and partition of Africa. At the late Basil Davidson, the renowned British Africa historian, stated, and I quote, Europe invaded Africa, took possession of Africa, and divided Africa into colonies of Europe, end of quote. Seven European powers partitioned, covered up, and fought the modern nation states of Africa. The territorial frontiers, drawn without regard the interests of the affected populations, often artificially split the same communities into two or three different colonial systems. During the European scramble for Africa, Africans lacked the organization, technology, and cohesion necessary to resist aggression. The creation of a centralized administrative system and a modern economic sector enabled Europe's political domination and economic plunder of Africa. European conquest created the colonial state as an apparatus to pacify local resistance, subjugate the natives, and extract surplus primarily for the benefit of colonial settlers and the colonial metropolis. The colonial powers combined European technology, know-how, and organization with African labor and natural resources to produce wealth on site and transfer it to Europe through exportation. Furthermore, the colonial project has exerted an enduring impact on the making of the present African state. Imperial Europe laid the foundation of the fragmentation and disunity of Africa. As the former colonies evolved into independent states, their artificial boundaries and the resultant territorial restructures became crucial factors posing serious challenges to peace, security, and sustainable development in the continent. The Cold War, fed by the East-West rivalry, turned Africa into a battlefield of proxy warfare, both at the interstate and intrastate levels. Many post-colonial African regimes, dubbed neocolonial, served as willing pawns in the East-West conflict to the detriment of real self-determination, democratic development, and functional governance. Wars and conflicts and the attendant waste, destabilization, and insecurity hampered the political, economic, and social development of Africa and degraded the human condition of Africans. The combined effect of the slave trade, the colonial project, and the Cold War retarded and distorted the autonomous development of Africa for five and a half centuries. This troubled history aside, a paradigm shift is underway in Europe-Africa relations today. There is political will and earnest effort to replace the old relations of dominance and dependence with a new strategic partnership and cooperation in the service of mutual and global interests.
The European Union and the African Union today are engaged in thematic partnerships, namely in peace and security, democratic governance and human rights, trade, regional integration and infrastructure, Millennium Development Goals, Energy, Climate Change and Environment, Migration, Mobility and Employment, and Science, Information Society, and Technology. Underpinned by political dialogue, this new relationship augurs well for economic development, the advance of democracy, and the improvement of the human condition in Africa. With this brief historical background, let me now go to the concept or to the struggle for self-determination in Africa. Decolonization turned the former colonies into independent states. Independence, however, did not translate into real self-determination. In a holistic sense, the principle of the right self-determination has three dimensions. One, it means the political right of a nation to determine its international political status, to decide its future and manage its own affairs. Two, it signifies the right of a people to a government of their choice, the right freely constitute or change their government as they deem fit. Three, it denotes the right of diverse groups within a nation to cultural autonomy the right to use, preserve, and develop their culture, language, and traditions. Besides pedagogical advantages in early learning and, and intellectual development, an own language gives people knowledge of their history, connection with their culture, and continuity of their identity. It is in recognition of these values that the United Nations celebrates 21 February as International Mother Language Day. The struggle for self-determination in Africa was not merely a struggle against colonial rule. It aimed as much for national liberation as for fundamental socioeconomic transformation. It was hoped that decolonization would usher in a new democratic dispensation that would open political, economic, and cultural space for freedom from oppression from want and from marginalization. Applied in its idealistic construct, the exercise of self-determination as a nation, as a people, and as diverse groups would have produced an independent, democratic, and developmental state able to empower the people and improve the human condition. Regrettably, however, this was not to be. Upon accession to independence and seizure of state power, the new national political elites, who were themselves products of colonial education, merely replicated the colonial state. They entrenched its highly centralized, authoritarian, and self-serving features. In the words of Franz Fanon, they were, and I quote, black-skinned white masks. Abandoning the early promise of the nationalist project they thought to extend their hold on power by any means, including the use of force to silence, repress, or eliminate any opposition. These features underlie the dismal record of failure 
of the prototype modern African state to build functional governance structures and viable institutions able to deliver freedom, democracy, and prosperity for the great majority of the African peoples. What then are the challenges of democracy in Africa today? Basically, the debate on the nature of the post-colonial African state and by implication its democratic deficit revolves around the European origin of the inherited state system and its suitability to the sociocultural situation of African societies. This debate has been characterized by two dominant paradigms. The first paradigm rationalizes the relevance of the European state system to Africa. The second paradigm attributes the cause of the crisis of the prototype contemporary African state to its European origin. However, I see a need for a new paradigm that locates the cause of Africa's present crisis primarily in the policies and practices of post-colonial African governments. Over 60 years after independence, it's untenable to continue to blame the colonial legacy for Africa's present predicament. For the basic cause of the failure to deliver lies in the authoritarian, predatory, and corrupt nature of the, of the post-colonial state. Acknowledging ownership of the problem is an important first step to the ownership of the solution. Here, it would be illustrative to cite the case of my own country, Eritrea, which despite high hopes that it would learn from the African experience and deliver where others before it had failed, has also disappointed. A once revolutionary movement in which I invested my youth has, after achieving victory and seizing state power, atrophied and turned authoritarian. As a national liberation movement, we fought for freedom, democracy, and prosperity. At the helm of power, we ended up with oppression, autocracy, and poverty, producing one of the highest rates of irregular migration per capita. This important debate on the nature of the prototype contemporary African state aside, I wish to underscore that democracy, freedom, and prosperity were the core objectives of the historic struggle for self-determination of the African peoples. But what do we mean by democracy? Obviously, it depends on one's worldview. There is no one-size-fits-all formula. Democracy means many things to many people. The debate on democracy, or what constitutes a democratic state, is full of discord and contention at the theoretical, empirical, and normative levels. The discourse lacks consensus while the practice remains divergent. Within the democratic family of values, there exist examples of traditional African democracy, liberal democracy, socialist democracy, communist democracy, or guided democracy. Each prototype, in turn, has its own variants. Let us, for instance, take the practice of democracy in the neoliberal world of the West, including Australia. There coexist many strands 
embracing several variants and differing perspectives of democracy. The fact that national governments of the political right or left, respectively espousing the model of the liberal state or the social state, periodically alternate at the helm of state power as a function of electoral parliamentary majority does not change the prevailing diversity in perspective or in practice. Yet, there are certain principles that distinguished a democratic from a non-democratic system of government. These are rule of law, respect for fundamental rights or freedoms, protection of basic rights, including minority rights, popular participation in the governance process, and transparency and accountability in public policy and decision-making, including in the management of state assets and national resources. A democratic state must creatively adapt these principles to suit the specific requirements of its historical evolution, socioeconomic conditions, and cultural values. The form of adaptation may vary. However, the essence of and adherence to the core principles must remain constant. To sum up, democracy has three basic attributes. First, it's an end and a means. Second, it's a process. Third, it is a form of politics based on universal principles. Among other things, democratic governance is a political practice based on the rule of law, legitimacy, and accountability. A moral imperative consistent with human aspirations for freedom and a better political order with social justice. And a constant process of opening an inclusive political, economic, social, and cultural space for all. Against, back, against this backdrop, let me now turn to the case of democracy in Africa. The nationalist elites who advocated independence and pan-Africanism became the new rulers. The end of colonial rule, or the advent of independence, ushered in a new era of hope and expectations of freedom, democracy, and prosperity for the vast majority of the African peoples. When the dust has settled, however, the discrepancy between the optimistic vision of independence and the autocratic practice of the new regimes became apparent. The divergence operated to obstruct delivery of the promise of independence and frustrate the aspirations of the people for a better life. It seems intrinsic in political systems that those who have power tend to use it in their own, to their own benefit. It follows then, although this may not always be the case, that democratic governments use shared power to serve the interests of the many, while autocratic governments use monopolized power to serve the interests of the few. With the predominance of autocratic regimes in post-independence Africa, wealth and influence followed power. This widened the income disparity between the few haves and the many have-nots. World Bank and IMF structural adjustments or adjustment programs exasperated widespread unemployment 
and poverty in many African countries. Democracy was given mere lip service, while autocracy remained the practice. Once at the helm of power, reaping the privileges and advantages of incumbency, the erstwhile proponents of democracy, freedom, and prosperity became the new guardians of the status quo in self-service. Widespread discontent and alienation fed popular unrest and political instability in the context of weak economies, fragile institutions, and external intervention fueled by the East-West rivalry. As a result, a cycle of military coups d'etat and counter-coups became normal. The khaki boys, as they were nicknamed at the time, overthrew one civilian government after another and seized the state power. According to the African Development Bank, Africa witnessed over 90 successful military coups and more than 110 attempted or failed attempts between 1960 and 2012. Yet the military regimes, many of which often sought legitimacy through the charade of some of sham elections, proved neither less autocratic nor better able to deliver public goods than their civilian predecessors. Following the fall of the Berlin Wall, the weakening of the East-West rivalry, and the end of history, a new wind of democratization began to blow, to blow across Africa. Revised constitutions, pluralist politics, and multi-party elections became fashionable. In practice, however, ruling elites often used the powers of incumbency to tilt the playing field in their favor and disable the conduct of free, fair, and credible elections in order to secure victory and retain power. Worse still, there arose the practice of manipulated and or coerced <coughs> constitutional amendments to abolish presidential term limits. Furthermore, the persistent exercise of the politics of exclusion under successive civilian or quasi-civilian regimes continued to provoke multiple conflicts, intrastate wars, and civil strife along several fault lines. And there are so many fault lines in Africa, as we all know. In the mid-1990s, for instance, intrastate conflicts and or civil wars affected 31 of Africa's then 53 independent states. The lack of peace, security, and stability hampered socioeconomic development. This, in turn, foreclosed the emergence of a sizable middle class and excluded the creation of autonomous civic organizations capable of countervailing the abuse of power. An undeveloped, insecure, and often divided civil society was too weak to nurture a democratic political culture, defend democratic principles, or serve as a bulwark of democratic norms. Most independent African states were thus unable to make a transition to a democratic system of government, establish functional governance structures, or deliver public goods. The concentration of power, resources, and opportunities in the hands of a small minority in the capital fuels alienation among the neglected majority in the center or the marginalized groups in the periphery.
This causes disaffection, fans discontent, and provokes resistance. Repression backfires and breeds armed rebellion. Armed resistance challenges the legitimacy of the state's monopoly and use of the instruments of violence. The dis the dynamic ex this dynamic explains the many destabilizing civil wars and conflicts that have plagued post-colonial Africa, while the colonial legacy of arbitrary fragmentation largely accounts for the, inter for the inter interstate wars and conflicts. Evidently, many African regimes preside over weak governments in fragile states, obsessed with staying in power at any cost. They pursue the, policy of di the politics of division and exclusion through the selective distribution of power, resources, and wealth in society, leaving a large majority of Africans disenfranchised, oppressed, and poor. The failure of the prototype contemporary African states to deliver freedom, democracy, and prosperity has eroded its legitimacy and rendered it largely irrelevant to the well-being of the great majority of the African peoples. What then are the prospects of democracy in Africa? Can the prototype African state reconstitute itself and reverse course to reclaim legitimacy and relevance? It is, of course, very difficult, in fact, impossible, to gauge or predict the prospects of democracy in Africa or in any particular African state for that matter. Africa is enormous and diverse. Its 54 states have different colonial legacies. They have Anglophone Africa, Francophone Africa, Lusophone Africa, and varied political systems, monarchical, presidential, and parliamentary. With an area of 30.3 million square kilometers, Africa is larger in size than China, Europe, India, Japan, and the United States put together. It is home to 1.1 billion citizens, more than 2,000 languages, and over 8,000 traditional governance and legal systems. Above all, much of Africa is a deeply tribal or clannish society where identity politics matters. Besides, Africa faces with the rest of the world the threat of random terrorism. We have ISIS in Egypt, and we've seen the tragedy they have wrought on the small uh, <coughs> minority uh, on Palms Day. So we have ISIS in Egypt and Libya, Al-Qaeda in the Maghreb, Boko Haram in the Sahel, and Al-Shabaab in Somalia. Climate change, irregular migration, endemic diseases, and vulnerable economies also pose serious challenges. Rising populist voices of nationalism and isolationism in a post-truth era of fake news and alternative facts in the global north represent additional uncertainties. On the other hand, demographic dynamics, resource base, and the evolving shift in the international balance of power wealth and influence from the West to the East offer Africa certain comparable advantages. These undercurrents driving national, regional, and global events would affect the evolution of democracy in Africa. 
The decisive factor, however, would be the internal dynamic, the way African states and pro-democracy for, pro forces meet the challenges and leverage the opportunities. In this regard, there are significant success stories which inspire optimism for the future. Cases include Botswana, Cape Verde, Ghana, Mauritius, Namibia, and Seychelles. In the final analysis, a fundamental reform or reconstruction of the prototype contemporary African state based on the rule of law, democratic principles, and respect for human rights would be necessary to actualize a democratic system of government, nurture a democratic culture, and sustain democratic institutions. Democratization of Africa's political systems would require access to political power, to arbitrary interests, and allocate resources in society. This makes the struggle for democracy essentially a struggle for power. In conclusion, I would like to list four key elements that could drive a gradual process of democratization in Africa. One, economic development and the concentrated distribution of national resources, giving rise to a nascent middle class, autonomous civil society, and political pluralism. Two, universal secular civic education to nurture and enlighten citizenship, enable participatory politics, and promote inform informed decision-making at the level of the individual citizen, society, and the body politic. Three, concerted national pro-democracy effort that is homegrown, inclusive, and people-centered, capable of effecting democratization from within. And four, proactive international support for national pro-democracy forces to complement and strengthen domestic efforts and processes of democratization. Thank you very much for your kind attention. You have been listening to a podcast from the Development Policy Centre. For more information on our work, visit our website at devpolicy.anu.edu.au. To join the conversation on Australian aid, Papua New Guinea, the Pacific and Global Development Policy, visit our blog at devpolicy.org. At the blog, you can also sign up to our newsletter to get all the latest updates, or you can connect with us on social media. Thanks for listening.